Being vertically integrated, meaning like, let's say you go into a state like New Mexico and you want to start a cannabis business, you know, you could be a cultivator. You could be a person who starts a processing lab who maybe just gets cannabis and turns into oil or turns it into edibles. Or you can be a dispensary owner, you know, actually retailing the product. Or you can be any combination of those three. When we say vertically integrated, it usually means you do the whole suite, all three. And I think those businesses are going to be the businesses that are going to have the most staying power in the market and they're going to be the most successful in the market because exactly you do own your own supply chain. And just because you don't think you might be good at one of those aspects, I don't want people to be scared of doing it. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. If you're in Austin, Texas, then you know we are in full swing here at South by Southwest. Of course, by the time this episode airs, I will be preparing and depending on what time you're listening to this, could very well be done with moderating my very first ever South by Southwest panel with Weed Maps, 35 Ventures, and Boardroom. Since I'm recording this in the past, I can't foresee the future, and I will have to provide you a proper South by Southwest cannabis recap once things are all said and done. But just know I appreciate you all tuning in every week as I bring up new topics new perspectives, and new guests to help us tackle where the future of cannabis is going with as much transparency and bluntness as possible. On the episode today, I am joined by Nate Lipton. You might be familiar with Nate from Cannacribs, where he is the co-founder and host, interviewing pioneers leading and shaping the global cannabis industry, specifically in the cultivation space. Think MTV Cribs, but for massive cannabis operation and grows. He's also the co-founder of GrowersHouse.com, which is the largest e-commerce store in our niche. And as an extension of Growers House, he runs Growers Network, which is the professional forum for cannabis conversation, education, networking, and cannacribs. And most recently launched consulting, offering a wealth of knowledge adopted over the last decade to help cultivators and operators get up to speed on the best practices. Before I get into my interview with Nate, I did want to provide a bit of an update from Lucky Leaf Albuquerque. And as you'll hear in this episode, Nate and I bring up the New Mexican cannabis market because we both actually happened to be at Lucky Leaf. And we didn't get the chance to meet IRL, unfortunately, but had already had this recording scheduled and the conference was just really packed. And and it was so great to see so many eyes on New Mexico, which to be honest, I'm not sure they were fully anticipating. So kind of on that thread, I think New Mexico is a sleeper state. At least it will be until we have federal legalization and or Texas legalization. And I'll explain. I gave a talk at Lucky Leaf on seed to strategy, how to get the sale. And since New Mexico goes from medical to adult use on April 1st of this year, my research that I was doing for my presentation led me to come across some data points from green growth CPAs that said when New Mexico goes adult use, 74% of demand will come from New Mexican residents. 21% will come from Texans and 5% will come from other tourists. And the total estimated revenue for adult use will go from 262 million this year in 2022 to pretty much doubling to 512 million in 2026. My observation with that is clearly Texans are craving legal cannabis and they will go to New Mexico to get it. 
So if you're in the New Mexico cannabis market, I personally would be thinking of how you can be marketing to Texans. Other than the clear market opportunity, the state is wide open in terms of branding from MSOs. There are two that I observed operating. Both, I believe, are from California. I saw Bloom and then Bang, but I believe it's pronounced Bong. So I anticipate it's a matter of time before we see national brands like Wana make their way there, as well as establish Southwestern brands coming from Arizona and even Colorado too. I also didn't see a ton of New Mexico brands that really stood out to me. Yes, there are people doing interesting things. For example, I saw Mountaintop Extracts actually had a really cool educational card series that their brand launched. I don't really know how they're using it and in what capacity, but I, I saw that on their website and I thought it was cool. And then another one that caught my attention was a dispensary brand called Everest Cannabis. And I didn't get a chance to go to their dispensary, but their website and social footprint seemed intriguing. From what I also gathered, Ultra runs New Mexico currently as a medical operator and will continue to dominate as things go adult use. And by the way, there are no caps on New Mexican licenses at the moment, no vertical integration requirements, although those are probably going to be better suited to weather the supply chain storm. Also, they will be prioritizing New Mexico residents, but there is no requirement to be a New Mexican resident either. So I expect big opportunity in New Mexico for the next two years as things open up and a race begins and also lots of challenges as the industry stabilizes and finds its footing. So Godspeed to anyone in New Mexico cannabis. Now, Nate and I talk about New Mexico on the podcast, and I wanted to give you a little bit of background. This episode was very prolific, and Nate dropped some serious insight into the structure of federal legalization, interstate commerce, his recommendations for people approaching cultivation. And there were just lots of good reflections from all aspects of the industry because he's had a part in pretty much every component of the go-to-market for a cannabis business or brand. And this episode is full of lots of information that I truly just hope you all appreciate. With that said, let's get straight to the episode. Please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Nate to the show. My name is uh, Nate Lipton and I'm uh, one of the co-CEOs and co-founders of Grower's House, Grower's Network, and Canna Cribs. So those are three kind of separate brands in the industry that primarily focus on either the equipment to outfit commercial grow operations and even hobbyist kind of outfits. So grow 10 in your closet and anything in between. And then we have a forum at growersnetwork.org. And then we have a YouTube series called Canna Cribs that we like to call kind of like a, in the edutainment category where we educate and entertain people on kind of extensive walkthroughs of commercial cannabis facilities. And these are like 20, 30, $50 million facilities. So it's kind of like a discovery channel, how it's made episode, but on seeing a cannabis plant grown from a tiny clone, for those who don't know, obviously the smallest kind of point of a cannabis life cycle, and then all the way to it be flowering and harvesting and put into packaging to go to retail. So let's see, getting into the industry was the second part of that question. How did I get into it? Just swan dived right into it after graduating from undergrad and haven't looked back since. So since I've graduated from undergrad, I think I've only worked in the cannabis industry. And that was about 2010, it's 2022 now. So it's a long story, but good to say just uh, I've enjoyed the industry thus far and don't plan on leaving. So yeah, no, I'm really excited to get connected to you. I mean, before we were recording, I was sharing just how important I think free information is, especially to our industry and being able to learn from others because the industry is so fast paced. And, and obviously, you know, my listeners know that every state has different regulations, different barriers to entry and different opportunities. And so personally, I've been someone who has consumed a lot of your content. And so now to get to pick your brain, share your story and get to you know, peek behind the curtain of you and your brands is very exciting. And so I know that people can for sure Google you, which I encourage them to Google you, go Google all your brands and businesses and just like read up about all the great things that you've done in the industry. But where I really want to kind of start the conversation for you to dive a little bit deeper into your kind of like Genesis story into the cannabis industry 
I was reading about your progression and, and like you kind of highlighted it, right? You graduated college and then you found yourself working in the cannabis industry. But I really wanted to tap into my observation of your kind of hustle and determination because I think people come from kind of two sides of the coin, right? They either are not cannabis people who have built a career in another industry and then see opportunity in cannabis, like, oh, how can I transfer that knowledge into this industry? Or they are fresh, maybe graduating college or, you know, kind of starting their careers. And they're like, what steps do I take to get in the industry? And when you started in cannabis around 2011, obviously the market was in a much different state just in general, because not as many states were actually legalized in any capacity, really. And so knowing that, but also just, you know, kind of going from your own journey, what made you feel so confident to get into cannabis? And how was that journey of getting involved? I mean, you know, did you have money in the bank to go invest in your company? Did you get investment? Like, what were those things that you did or didn't have that you're like, this gives me confidence to now be, you know, someone who can be in the cannabis industry and not just be in it, but to see opportunity to thrive in it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few things that I did that I would also recommend to others. And I feel like I ended up having a pretty smooth career transition into the cannabis industry because of these things. So let's, let's go through them really fast. So I did go to school in my undergrad and I got some hard skills. I got some hard skills in like economics and finance, but I was always very entrepreneurial And a lot of things I learned is in school, at least where you could have a great idea in a great industry, but it could be the wrong timing. And when I was, uh, I I really, really marinated in that. And I was like, okay, what industries, well, the opposite side of that coin, some people say is you can be maybe not the most well-informed person, but in the right industry. And even with an okay skill set, and you can do really well. And I was like, well, you know, I'm no Albert Einstein or Elon Musk, but, you know, maybe if I find the right industry that is really taking off, plus I have uh, maybe a personal interest in, that could be the best way to spend my career. So the cannabis industry was probably the most ripe industry at the time that kind of met that criteria. Then the second phase of that was, okay, I'm really young and inexperienced. How do I gain experience? So I was like, okay work at a dispensary, work at a cultivation equipment supplier. So I did that for about a year-ish, those two companies. And that entrepreneurial bug in me was like, okay, this is great working for others, but like I need to I need to like kind of jump off this cliff, open my wings and start flying. You know, I could just I had that itch in me. Did I have a ton of money at my disposal to do so? No, I had about five thousand dollars. So not a substantial amount of money by anyone's terms. And after I built a little bit of like a, like a business plan, I realized, okay, probably going to need $150,000. So I asked my family and everyone around my family, family, friends, if they would be interested in coming on. And it wasn't a very casual conversation. Like I had to show them my business plan, kind of model out, you know, an income statement over three years, show them how much money they'd get back. But eventually, you know, my father said he would put in money, which ended up being about $70,000. And then we got some family friends who are kind of like, you know, you always have kind of like those uncles or aunts who like aren't blood related, but you just kind of grew up with them and they're really cool with you. So some of them came in, three of them for another $75,000. And then all put together, we had $150,000 and we started Grower's House in 2011. And you know, it was kind of funny because I actually remember presenting to them in New York, because that's where they live. My father's from Brooklyn at a Chinese restaurant with my laptop. And I was like, okay, guys, we're going out for lunch and I'm going to just try and sell you on believing in me. And these are like, you know, my uncles, they, they like saw me born. They would probably change my diapers a few times. So it was good to have people like that on the other side of the business. They were not professional investors by any means. And I don't think I had people breathing down my throat in ways that I, uh, that a lot of other professional businesses have now, if they're like venture backed or private equity backed, these were more of like, eh, just call them up, tell them how the business is doing. It's going well. It's not going so well. They'd be like, okay, well, you coming, uh, you coming out for the holidays? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so that's kind of how it got started. And we were lucky enough to be kind of right, right industry, right time. And the cool thing is when you get in on the ground floor, 
it's funny to think I'm a veteran now, but I'm only 33 years old, but I've been in the industry longer than um, most other people that I interact with, which is cool. But I don't want people to think getting in now is a bad, bad idea whatsoever. I think the industry right now is still really looking for a lot of smart people, people that are interested in the kind of like cannabis movement and its progression to maybe full legalization. And not only in the US, but internationally, like Canada and Uruguay were some of the first dominoes to fall. But you know, the US has obviously pretty much fallen. Just a few more states like Texas, right? We got to get in there. Yeah, but you know, there's going to be a worldwide kind of falling of the dominoes over the next 50, 100 years, let's call it. So you know, for those of you who are like, yeah, you know, I'm just graduating from college. I want to go move abroad and spend some years traveling. Great. Go to, go to Colombia, go to Spain. These are countries that are up and coming right now. Mexico is about to have a big shift in the way they treat cannabis. You can kind of do cannabis in many places in the world right now and get in on the ground floor, uh, much like I did in the U.S. And I think for the opportunists, like the getting is good right now. So go get it. I love that perspective. I think that is so important to kind of keep in mind because I do respect and reflect also you have been in the industry for much longer than I have been. But, you know, a couple of years in, I still feel like, wow, I I feel like I know a lot. But at the same time, I try to keep an approach of there's still so much more to learn, especially as states like my own state have not yet fully come online. And so looking at it from that lens, I do appreciate people you know, feeling the opportunity in the industry. I always try to use the podcast as a platform of inspiration and not like you're late to the party, <laughs> you know, it's over, but really wanting people to think fully also of what it is like to be in the industry. And I'm going to quote something you said, I was doing some research about you and I just thought it was really interesting. And I'm curious if your perspectives or thoughts have changed. You said, my goal in working for diverse cannabis related companies was to understand the industry holistically and figure out my best long-term place within. So obviously we're talking about getting involved, you know, kind of working jobs in the industry to get you that awareness and connections and associations. And you said, in the beginning, I first thought I would open a dispensary around 2011. Opening a dispensary was for cowboys, i.e. people with a high appetite for risk, willing to take on the possibility of law enforcement raiding your establishment, depending on the current local political climate, I decided this was too risky for me. So kind of reflecting on that quote, I don't know if your thoughts with the industry have changed, but I guess that's the other perspective that I always try to bring to the podcast too, is this is a very risky industry. And so you decided, and I'll kind of, you know, make a positioning against it. You decided to do, in my opinion, something ancillary, right? You're not actually selling And maybe you are, maybe there's aspects of your business, but you're not actually touching the plant when you're selling things. You are selling the picks and shovels or the tents and the nutrients and the supplies for people to go grow very successfully, right? But I think when you're talking about dispensary, even cultivation, there is that more potential for risk. And so I think that's another aspect that people need to just be very mindful of depending on what, you know, kind of road you pick to go into the cannabis industry. I would say some are perhaps still presently even more risky than others. And so I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on that quote and if you still feel the same and, and kind of what your observations are on choosing different, I guess, professions in the cannabis industry that might be more or less risk averse. Yeah. And that quote is definitely a thinking for that time and place in the industry. And that time and place was 2011, California specifically. So if we jump in our time capsule and then go back there really fast, what we realize is it was very gray in California. It wasn't black and white. Like we were just talking about New Mexico before we jumped on the podcast. New Mexico has like state law that they have to start selling recreational cannabis on April 1st. And they are issuing out state licenses for cultivators, dispensaries. In California, it was like Well, the state says it's legal, but we don't really have a commission to issue licenses. And they're kind of deferring to the city and the county. And then the county is also deferring to the state. And no one's taking responsibility for it. And so some people are just opening up shop and being like, well, hopefully no one raids me. Let's just try and do business, you know? And I was like, wow, that's, that, that is pretty risky. And plus I interviewed a lot of dispensary owners and yeah, it was like, probably one in five got raided at some point in time. When I was like 
those rates are way too high. I think getting into the industry today, and we're talking about 2022, if you go to any state is issuing licenses, like I would be pretty comfortable picking up licenses in those states. And, you know, I've worked on the dispensary side, so the flower touching side, and I am part owner of a couple dispensaries now in other states. And the industry is way more, way more mature than it was back then. And I think you don't have to be a cowboy to get in the industry now like you had to in California back then. And I speak with very professional people. I mean, I wouldn't say the cannabis industry is mature yet. It's just maturing, you know. But, you know, now it's these are really big companies. Some of them are public. I do consulting because I've, I kind of have this holistic understanding of the industry from the ancillary side and the flower touching, you know, selling equipment to people growing. I've operated dispensaries, part owner of some. I work with software. Since we tour all these facilities, I get to see like really deep inside to some of the best operators in the world. But we do consulting for a lot of big companies and whether they're big companies or are thinking about getting in the cannabis industry or even small people who retired and now they want to take a little bit of the money they put away and get into the industry as a passion project. So we can consult with those people. And that's actually one of the most gratifying things that I do, I think, because it's like, oh, you want to learn about the cannabis industry? Cool. You know, grab a drink, sit down for three hours and just let me talk at you. And I love doing that. So doing this podcast to me is also a lot of fun because I just, we don't have to prepare for anything in this podcast. I'm just like, cool, I'm just going to jump on with Shada and then we're going to talk about the industry. And basically this is like what I dream about, what I think about. I don't stop thinking about it. I'm like one of those minds that's going a million miles a minute and I need something to sink my teeth into. And so it's like all aspects of the cannabis industry. So uh, aside from going pretty tangential on that question, Let's see. What's up next? (laughs) No, that was super helpful to hear just your perspective. I think where I come from is maybe a little bit more, and especially because of Texas, right? I mean, we are certainly not getting rated, but there is still, I think, a gray area because regulations are not firm, because there is still certain aspects when you're dealing with hemp to marijuana of just, you know, especially with 0.3%. And did it go over? And is it hot? And what's happening? And I think we often feel like the rug is being pulled out from underneath us. And so I feel sometimes I get in conversations where people are like, oh, well, what's going to make me, you know, the most bang for my buck? What's the best way to get in the industry? And I'm like, well, if you're in Texas and you opened a CBD dispensary thinking that the state was going to legalize last year, obviously you are wrong because the state did not legalize marijuana last year. And now you are waiting is it going to be in a year when we have our next legislative session? Is it going to be in three years? Is it going to be in you know five years? And so I think that's kind of where I sometimes come from the conversation is, yes, obviously so many new states are opening. We were just talking about New Mexico. Their, their restrictions are very low. Their barriers to entry are very low. There doesn't seem to be any caps on licensing. They don't even have restrictions on if you are a resident or not in the state of New Mexico, even though they say they're going to prioritize New Mexico residents. It's just that is a very different program than Oklahoma is a very different program than California. And so I, very similar to you, but definitely not to the degree that you were having these conversations and going into these businesses and and kind of getting the true pulse for it. But I do, I see you hear from California, oh, well, California's taxes are so high. So the cost of, you know, operating and investing in the industry is going to take a lot more capital than perhaps getting online in a state like New Mexico. So I do think that there are some, you know, again, different opportunities based on geography, financial situation, and still risk. But where I want to kind of turn the conversation and throw you another one, which I really love that you talk openly, at least from what I've observed, and it is such a huge component of your business, which is a big component of my business and also my background. I professionally used to work in the technological platform integration e-commerce space. And so e-commerce is hard. (laughs) E-commerce and cannabis is even harder. So can you kind of, you know, introduce us to how did you get into opening up an e-commerce? Like why was it e-commerce? Why not retail? And how has getting online with your business and now businesses kind of changed as the industry has opened up? But kind of the punchline to me that I think we both know is it's still very hard to do things online in the cannabis industry for a myriad of reasons. But knowing that you 
to me, are very knowledgeable about e-commerce and you've obviously seen success in it. It is something that I don't think a lot of people talk about in the cannabis industry, primarily because if you're selling marijuana prior to COVID, you really didn't have any purpose of being online other than, you know, showing your products and your address and kind of, you know, a presence online. You were not doing transactions online. Hemp, you are able to do transactions online, but then you're getting an ancillary. You absolutely, obviously can do transactions online. So kind of what about e-commerce was like, you know what, I'm going to do that and I'm going to succeed in it. And, and kind of what was the journey that you went on to be operational online? Yeah. And I, um, you know, full disclosure, I definitely am a glutton for punishment. So I take on way more than I actually can physically do. And our business has just turned into like these multi-headed beasts as businesses really. And the funny thing is, I said, like, you know, you have to be a cowboy in 2011 in California to open a dispensary. Little did I know, you actually have to be a cowboy to enter the e-commerce space in the ancillary cannabis industry. And I've been shut down by a dozen banks. I would say every couple months, something happens that is related to us being close enough to the cannabis industry, even though we don't touch the plant where it's like, oh yeah, this advertiser shut us down. This credit card processor shut us down. It's just like, it just never stops. I'm like, I want this banking bill to pass so, so badly that it would just make like the amount of headaches that I have probably go down by like 80% in our business. But I did do the retail thing and we continue to do it. We have two retail stores, one in Tucson, Arizona, one in Phoenix, Arizona. We did the e-commerce thing because... On the dispensary side, you know, you were talking about different states are really different economies for cannabis. And I like to think about them that way. When I do any education for people or consulting or anything like that, I tell people, like, think of every state as its own microeconomy and its own country for cannabis. It has its own rules and regulations. It has its own incentives and disincentives. And you can't right now in the US, and I actually don't think this is going to happen anytime in the near future, even if it goes federally legal, you can't move cannabis legally over state borders. So even though it's recreational in Arizona and New Mexico, you still it's illegal to take cannabis from one side to the other in any type of economic capacity. So like by economic capacity, I mean, like, let's say you're a dispensary, you know, Shada, Shada, Arizona dispensary, right? And then you have Shada, New Mexico dispensary. You can't transfer inventory between those two dispensaries. That's illegal. So really, you have to think of them as their closed border economy. And that also means your market size is related to the population of that state and their propensity to maybe smoke cannabis or ingest cannabis. So, um, you know, New Mexico is about 2 million people. Oklahoma is about 4 million. Arizona, I thought, I forgot, it's 7 to 9 million, something like that. I do e-commerce for cannabis cultivators. And in the US, I have what, 350 plus million people I can sell to. I can cross state borders with all the equipment that we sell, which is great. Not only that, we're doing a lot of international business now. So we're speaking to people in like Portugal, Thailand, Uruguay, Colombia, South Africa, sending equipment, Israel, like you know, we're sending equipment to all of these cool countries that are getting their getting their toes wet in the cannabis industry. So that's one reason I really liked the, the e-commerce side and being on the ancillary side. The market potential is much larger, and I get to interact with a wide diversity of different cannabis economies, you know, micro economies, and it's cool. I get to see them kind of do all these weird and interesting things. Like you know, people have heard about. If you're deep in the cannabis industry, you'll realize that like the price of cannabis in these different states is vastly different, right? So like wholesale. In Massachusetts, let's say, it can be like $2,500 a pound wholesale for cannabis, for good cannabis. You go to Oregon, right after they had a glut, and it was like 300 a pound for like outdoor cannabis. Like Literally, that's like a 10x difference. It is crazy. And you see those little differences in states. And like it, it's kind of nice being on the e-commerce side because as these markets kind of increase in size and then have some turbulence in pricing. Our business is pretty diversified across the country. So yes, I try and ride the good times and yes, there are some bad times, but luckily since we sell into so many States, it kind of normalizes and it's a little more even keeled. So 
I'm not pulling my hair out as the price of cannabis fluctuates like some operators might be doing in some states like Oklahoma right now. It's starting to see that glut come where glut of cannabis, meaning oversupply, price is going to go down. Unfortunately, it does mean that probably some inefficient operators might be going out of business in Oklahoma over the next 12 months. And that's kind of what happens with open markets. When you have unlimited amount of licensing, a lot of people start growing cannabis and they realize they produce more than there's demand for. And then they all kind of shoot each other in the foot. So um, there are other states that are limited licensure, like Massachusetts, Arizona, those limited licensing states, the prices are much more stable, but there's not as much opportunity for new entrepreneurs to get into the market. So there are pros and cons to both. I don't want to say one's better than the other because I don't necessarily believe that one's better than the other. It's just, how do you respond to the market dynamics? You know, How do you make a successful business that can be around for five years plus? And answering those questions is going to be dependent on what the laws are and the regulations in your state or whether you're touching cannabis or you're on the ancillary side, you know? So yeah, maybe that's my way to answer that question. (laughs) I I thought that was insightful because again, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I just think the general, I don't want to say general public, like the general public who wants to be a, a business owner in the cannabis industry is obviously trying to look at well, how do I understand? I love the way you were positioning it as these micro economies. And it really is that way. And for some people, they are restricted because like using myself as an example, I was born, raised in Texas. So this is my home. I, I could go do business in another state, but I don't maybe know that state as well. So it's not impossible. It's just maybe I need to get a partner. Maybe I need to spend some time learning about that state's operations. So it makes the most sense for me to do Texas. Well, my understanding of the industry is that Texas will probably be a limited licensure state just because that's what our medical is operating under right now. And because Texas is a more conservative state. And so I have to prepare myself that there are perhaps not going to be as many license opportunities. And if that is something that I want to be a part of, I have to think, well, how am I going to get the funds to be able to afford the license and all the overhead that comes with it? Do I have the funds to get the facility that I'm going to need to be? I also think Texas is going to be vertically integrated just because that's, again, how our medical is. And so those are other things that, again, I never want people to think, oh, there's all these doors that are shutting. It's just this is the reality of our market here. And you have to understand what Texas is doing different than what New Mexico is doing, different than what Oklahoma is doing. But I want to go back really quick. You were talking about even if we go federally legal, you don't think that there will be interstate commerce. And I'm curious why you think that, because I think the assumption kind of, of you know, the general community in the cannabis industry, at least from, and I'll call them out those Oklahomans who think that I-35 corridor is going to open up when we get Texas legal and federal legality, they think, oh, well, I'm going to take my Oklahoma product. And I'm just going to drive it down into Texas and it's going to be awesome. So again, I think you have people who are getting into business in Oklahoma, for example, thinking that one day I'm going to be able to take my product to Texas, to these other states. And for a myriad of reasons that I have beliefs on, I just don't really see that actually happening in the way that people are glamorizing it or thinking that it's going to happen. And so with your background and and knowledge, I'm curious, just because you kind of said that, why do you think that even if we get federal legalization, we might not see the interstate transfer of goods from one state to the next, even if those neighboring states are both legal. Yeah. So we have donated money towards pro-legalization measures in multiple states. And in doing so, I've also interacted with a fair amount of lobbyists who also participate on the state level, but also on a national level, some of them based out of DC. And I've also been on a few panels with CEOs of MSOs. So MSO is multi-state operator. So those are the really large cannabis businesses, such as like Curaleaf, Cresco, Trueleaf, Harvest. Those those kind of companies, they're very large. They're like multi-billion dollar companies with thousands of employees. And they're also really tapped into lobbying on a state and federal level. And what we found out is each state like New Mexico, we've been chatting a lot about, they had to build a new division, governmental division called the Cannabis Corporation Commission. And that's the commission that oversees the entire cannabis industries in the state and issues out licenses, makes sure that they are applying the right products, whether it's like pesticides, make sure that cannabis is safe for human ingestion. So there's a lot of investment from the state 
into building that commission. And that commission is also what takes in the revenue from the cannabis industry and then divvies it out to things like, let's say, education, healthcare, other things in the state that they earmark it for. So New Mexico is not interested in basically they're going to let's say let's say they have 2000 cultivators and dispensaries in 24 months from now. They get annual renewal from them plus tax revenue from each one of those. Let's say we go federally legal. What's going to happen if you cannabis can cross state borders? You're going to get like five ginormous growing operations in the country. Like think of it like tobacco. Five ginormous farms and they're going to distribute and manufacture everything because it's just going to be whoever has the most money wins because there's this thing called economies of scale, which just means the bigger you get, the cheaper it is for you to produce a gram of cannabis. And when that happens, what would happen to New Mexico? New Mexico is probably not the best state to grow cannabis in. There's probably better places that would work for year round production. All those other cannabis businesses would dry up. New Mexico would now get no tax revenue from those businesses. They'd have to wind down that corporation commission. And do you think the senators, representatives of New Mexico are going to be interested in removing jobs away from New Mexico and tax revenue? No. So there's going to be, there would be like, you know, in this back end lobbying, there's like three states that want there to be federal legalization with cross-state commerce. And that's like maybe California and like Kentucky and maybe like one other ones, basically the, the places that are best to grow cannabis, where these mega facilities would live. The other 47 states are like, no way. We've already invested so much time, energy, and money into getting this going within our state. Why would we just light that on fire for the benefit of a few mega corporations in a couple states? So that's why the cannabis industry, you know, going into the future is going to be this very kind of interesting, kind of local operational way. And look, the smartest, largest corporations in the, uh, cannabis industry are also banking on that. Like they're building out large multi-million dollar cultivation facilities in each state. And they're doing that because they know that in five years from now, if they just build one giant massive facility in Kentucky, they can't export to other states or California and export to other states. So you can see the smartest people in the industry acting according to what I just spoke about. So in the federal government, there's going to probably, if they legalize it, they're probably like, cool, it's legal now. So there's some federal laws you don't have to worry about, but we're going to leave a lot of kind of the way that cannabis gets treated to the states, kind of like the way alcohol is done. In some states, you can buy alcohol only until like 9 or 10 p.m. In some states like Utah, they kind of manage what the alcohol limit is. So there's a lot of autonomy left to the states, and I think it's going to continue to be that way for the foreseeable future. Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister, so we are family-owned and women-owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin, so if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide, and we carry a wide range of CBD products We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code TOBEBLUNT for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks, and let's go back to the show. That is so fascinating. I had not ever heard that. I guess, nuance of an opinion related to federal legalization. Obviously, I think, and I share this thought on the podcast, me as a cannabis consumer prior to getting in the industry, obviously, like I want legalization. (laughs) Me as Shada, who now professionally works in the cannabis industry and has the opportunity to talk across state lines into all these different economies is like, oh my God, (laughs) we have so many things that we have to fix before we can actually go towards federal legalization. And even using the words federal legalization, obviously it still has unique state applications. It's not just going to be, okay, it's legal and then you can do whatever you want. And I think that is really interesting just to think of how some of these bigger multi-state operators are. Yeah. Why would they be investing all this money into all these different states if 
two years, six years from now, it's all going to be able to go across state lines. And so I imagine it'll be some version of what, you know, you're expressing right here. So very cool. Kind of in a similar vein, a follow-up to that is, and I'm curious because, and I want to kind of get into can of cribs now, just because it is so like we need cultivation as an industry. Like you do not get all these products. You do not get all, you know, you don't get cannabis unless you have cultivation of cannabis. Um, especially coming from, we have been talking a lot about New Mexico. And, and so I'll just kind of reflect on that because that's kind of top of mind. And, and I was speaking on seed to sale, you know, how do you strategize and ultimately get your product to market? And so I, I think that people can have the idea to be cultivators, but if you don't have the output of where you're going to sell that product, and you kind of were talking about that a little bit too, you know, the price in Massachusetts is going to be much different than the price in Oregon. But I think that there's people who don't realize they don't see that. They don't fully understand the different economies that are at play. They don't understand the different trajectories that go into making a successful cannabis cultivation versus not. Obviously, everybody who's like, oh, I grow in my backyard, that doesn't make you a good cannabis grower. And so I had a lot of people at the show who were like, well, what do I do? Should I cultivate? Do I grow? And I'm thinking, you know, that's a loaded question because if you're actually good at growing, obviously owning your supply chain, even though the state is not requiring you to be vertically integrated is probably a good solution for some where it makes sense. And for others, maybe if you're not the best grower, investing in cultivation is not going to be as lucrative as you might think. And so kind of the the bulk of the question is really around people who are looking at cultivation as uh, the best step into the industry like, what does that look like from your perspective, from exploring all these conversations with maybe closet grows to these full, you know, multi-operational and even multi-state players who are trying to set grows? I just was um, reflecting on your Jungle Boys video. You know, they're based in California. They're now setting up operation in Florida. They've built this semi-scale of a business. But people, again, we need cultivators, but there is limited licensure. There is, I mean, you were even talking about, you know, just because you can grow in New Mexico, which is kind of my attitude with Texas, just because you can grow in Texas doesn't mean Texas is going to have the best cannabis. Then you get into indoor versus outdoor. Obviously, there's different degrees of cultivation within there. But so looking at kind of the conversation of cultivation, if someone's like, hey, Nate, I really want to get into cultivating. (laughs) I know it's a loaded question because there's so many other, you know, aspects about it, but kind of how do you look at it and what has kind of been the sentiment of cultivation from your perspective in terms of it actually being viable for let's say the 99 people who want to go into cultivation, what is the percentage of those people who actually find success doing it? Man, I will say Shada, there's a I have a lot to say about this question. There's going to be a lot to unpack. Okay. So see if we kind of can even like hold on to every nugget. <laughs> of kind of the um this conversation but i would say this first being vertically integrated meaning like let's say you go into a state like new mexico and you want to start a cannabis business you know you could be a cultivator you could be a person who starts a processing lab who maybe just gets cannabis and turns into oil or turns it into edibles or you can be a dispensary owner actually retailing the product or you can be any combination of those three when we say vertically integrated it usually means you do the whole suite all three And I think those businesses are going to be the businesses that are going to have the most staying power in the market and they're going to be the most successful in the market because exactly, you do own your own supply chain. And just because you don't think you might be good at one of those aspects, I don't want people to be scared of doing it because there's actually a lot of people out in the cannabis industry who are consultants who can make you very good at something very quickly. So don't think you have to figure it all out for yourself. Like literally lean on, lean on tons of knowledge in the industry. And really any one of those three, I would not say is overly complicated. Yes, you might not know it. So it's very intimidating, but that does not mean that it is extremely hard to do. But what I will say is there are many small growers, hobbyist growers who now want to scale up. Do not think that growing on a small scale is similar to growing on a large scale. It's like, other than it being the same plant, almost everything is different. So as long as you have that in your head, you'll probably do pretty well. But when you try and take methodologies for small growing operations, like a 4x4 tent or a 4x8 tent, even a 10x10 room, and you bring it up to 25, 5,000, 10,000 square feet, totally different set of kind of operational parameters that you're going to have. 
And that's something that we kind of focus on. We're doing that in New Mexico. You know, we were just out at a trade show that you were at and we were there as Grower's House, which is the equipment side, and then Canicribs Consulting, which is the consulting side. And we spun up Canicribs Consulting because Canicribs, we basically started filming our customers. So if you watch the Canicribs YouTube series, you see literally some of the best cannabis cultivators in the country and we help outfit and help build their operations. And then after we started doing Canicribs for a while, I started getting a lot of messages on like Instagram and to my email of people saying like, hey, can you come out and consult us? And I'm like, well, I mean, I can talk to you, but they're like, no, we want you to fly out and like help us at the six month design and build process. And I was like, wow, I kind of have a day job. Like I can't really go do that. So we had to spin up a consulting division and we ended up hiring people that were amazingly smart, much smarter than I am at cultivation. These guys have PhDs. Like one of them is the first. PhD of cannabis cultivation in North America. He had to get it in Canada because it's federally legal there. But these guys are amazingly good. They help build out the Aurora facility for people who are familiar with that company in Canada, uh, one of the largest cannabis companies in the world. And the cool thing is when we go and tour our customers and some of the best cultivation facilities in the country, we learn a lot from them. They teach us a lot. So the cool thing is we can end up bringing that, those benefits to like our customers on the equipment or consulting side. And we think it gives us a little bit of an edge over maybe some other consulting companies out there because of because of that. And it's kind of like a chef. Like let's say you're having a wedding. I think you said you and Sage are going to get married soon. So like let's say there's an awesome chef in Austin who like, yeah, he started his own restaurant. He's a really good chef. You tried his food, it's great. Right. Now say there's a chef who just came into town And it turns out that this chef also has a great restaurant, but at the same time, there's that show on Netflix, Chef's Table, right? So imagine there's a chef who's toured the top 30 best restaurants in the world and got to go work at them and learn from those chefs and then comes to Austin and was like, oh yeah, you know, I can also cook for your wedding. Like, who are you going to choose? The one who like kind of started with his own restaurant or maybe the person who learned from 30 of the best restaurants in the world and is able to take all that knowledge and condense it down. And they have a larger diversity of experiences, larger diversity of methodologies. And usually when it comes to growers, just like chefs, there's a few things they're really good at, but they're not good at everything, right? So when we go to growing operations, it's like that a lot. So they're good at certain things and we like to take the best of what they're great at and then we can put it all together into the best methodologies for growing cannabis. And like, we could take someone who's like, yeah, I, I just raised $150,000 and I know nothing about growing. We can take that and we can just like transmit that information to you. So like, since we, you know, we could do that on cultivation, there's people that can do that on processing. There's people that can do that on retail. Don't be intimidated by going after that stuff. Everyone can be an all-star in the cannabis industry. Just be smart and leverage other people's knowledge. Don't try and make all the mistakes yourself that 10,000 people have already made before you. So that's what I'd kind of say on people looking to get in the cannabis industry or thinking about growing. On that comment of people can be good growers, I've been really curious because as a marketer, you know, you kind of look at the best and I'll equate it to every town. I feel like there's a freaking sign that says this is the best burger and best is relative, right? And so you've toured and worked with, and I'm sure tried a bunch of different cannabis. What do you believe makes something the best? And is the best really not even attainable? Is it more around the branding of the business than the actual, like to me, I just don't even know really what is quality. Are we looking for potency? Are we looking for certain formation of trichomes? Is it the height of the plant? Is it the amount of flour, you know, that it is produced, like what goes into making something the best. And since you have literally (laughs) walked through some of the best setups that are producing the best flour, I'm just curious, is best really something real that we can achieve in the industry or, or should we maybe be chasing consistency and quality? And maybe that is more attainable for people to be good at something versus, oh, I got to be the best grower or the best whatever? Yeah, really great question. And I would say 
My answer is there is no best cannabis. I think there is a best for you cannabis versus just the best in like an objective sense. It's got to be more subjective. And what I mean by that is, is there a best alcohol in the world? No, there's like, you know, some of my friends like Merlot, some like tequila, some like an IPA. And it's a little bit just more about your subjective experience. And if I could educate cannabis users going to the future and I wanted to like really impart them with something, it would be that consistency is probably more important than a lot of other things like THC percentage. We've done tests actually where we take flour, different THC percentages, all the way from like 10% to 30%. And you just take away all the numbers, just put a number, like a number one, strain one, strain two, strain three, do that to 10, send it out to 10 people. And sometimes, you know, there'll be like the 11% THC and they'll be like, oh my God, that floored me. And what we're finding out is we kind of use like THC as a proxy for how strong something is, but it turns out it's a lot more complex than that. And I'd want people to kind of disassociate THC percentage with the quality of cannabis. I think it's more of try a few things and then see what your subjective experience is, which one makes you feel best. Everyone's endocannabinoid system is a little bit different. So it processes, you know, cannabis a little bit differently. So, but once you find something that works well, you want to have that over and over again. So that's where the consistency comes in. So a grower who consistently grows a strain that ends up working well for people and can keep it consistent. They don't have genetic drift and they're able to kind of keep the mothers healthy so that maybe they do tissue culture. So they keep the genetics very strong and healthy. I think that's where a lot of value is in the industry and not just on maximizing thc percentage like maximizing thc percentage is like it's kind of like going out and buying like the ten thousand dollar louis vuitton purse why oh because you said you did it because you could you know you bought 30 percent cannabis but really like did it hold your cell phone and your chapstick better than the uh 30 purse no it's like so kind of figure out what works best for you but if you want to buy the cool highest strain you know someone can probably make some extra margin from selling it because it has that extra thc but don't expect that to necessarily mean that you're going to have a better subjective experience using that cannabis. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me as a marketer kind of looking through the industry. It's like what makes someone purchase something? And I think we have to deal with the industry and educating ourselves because I do think you have cultivators and growers who they, they do. Like you said, they, they want to grow the highest percentage because they can do it. But then you also have the consumers who are not as educated, and they think the highest percentage is going to get them the most zooted. And then you have everything in between that's like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not actually what you're trying to look for. But it's, it's, you know, it goes down to packaging, labeling, the growers, picking the genetics, all of it kind of breathes life into that, you know, eighth baggie or package that you're purchasing. And so it is just, I think, a slow and steady kind of transition of conversation where I think people do, they want to find the best, but it is really what is the best for you. And so as people are going into the industry operationally wise, I just, I really want people to not be so hung up on like, well, how do I be, you know, not be the best. Like I want you to be the best, but it's like best is relative. And so I think especially further based on every state that's operating. So I am curious given how many people that, you know, grows you've gotten to walk through. I was reading there's some like level of category that the grows have to be at for them to make it on can of cribs. And so if you could just kind of like briefly kind of go into that, because I do think you are highlighting, you know, the best, but it's like the best in Los Angeles, the best in, let's say Colorado, the best in, you know, different parts of the country. What makes something qualified to make it on can of cribs and kind of what is your observation then of those people who have kind of achieved that level of status? Is it really going back to, well, they just grew really great, you know, buds or they've built brand around it. Kind of what goes into making these businesses qualified to then end up on can of cribs? Yeah. So we do some cool things on that side that I really like, but the way we film can of cribs is actually we go out to like a region and then we film like four to six episodes at once. And that region will usually be like a state. So like one of the most recent ones we did actually later today, like literally when I get off this podcast, I'm jumping into Uber and going to the airport to film Stizzy, 
in California. That's so cool. Yeah. So S-T-I-I-I-Z-Y. Very big brand in California. Amazing reputation over there. And it's a combination of a few things. We're going out to California, so they're there. We ask the local cannabis connoisseurs in the area before we go out there, what are the big brands? What are the ones that are well-respected by the cannabis industry? And they fill out polls for us and they helps us know like, okay, who are the big brands? We kind of go in there with some idea, but we don't pretend to go into a market and just say like, we know who the best are. We're just going to walk over there and choose them. And, you know, it also has to be a combination of them saying, yeah, we want to let you in. We're down to kind of show off what we're doing. Some people are very, they hold things close to the chest, you know, and they don't want to open up the kimono, so to speak. So we appreciate the people that do do that, but it has to be a combination of well-respected in that area. They've built a good brand. They're using, like their growing operation has to be doing things that are unique and large. We're not going to go film an operation where like things are duct taped together and zip tied over here. Like, that's that's not people operating at their best. And we think people, they want to learn from the best. So we want to show them the best. But we're actually also coming out with some content that for really about smaller growers, almost like entry level or like really craft boutique growers, caregivers, things like that. Because we noticed that a large part of our audience are growers like that. And I think it's there's value in being aspirational and looking to the absolute best. But there's also a lot of value to like, looking at someone that you can relate to who's doing a really good job. So we recognize that and we're going to be creating content really on both of those sides. And we hope that both of them can be valuable to all growers out there. Very, very cool. I think, uh, yeah, it's just as the industry continues to open up, it is people want to see themselves. And I think that there is a little bit of fear, at least from my perspective, you know, speaking transparently as someone who is very much in the industry and, and the state isn't quite open yet. And it's, well, do I even have a fighting chance if Texas goes online because you're going to have these multi-state operators or these legacy people, growers, businesses, operators who have already been doing it? And so how do you kind of rise to the occasion, rise to the opportunity to you know have some skin in the game? So I think what you're doing is certainly very important just to be highlighting these stories. And obviously it ties into your businesses. And as a result, it's helped you continue to grow everything that you're doing. So I'm just like very grateful to get to, you know, bend your ear a little bit and share it with the listeners so that they can get some insight into some of the things that you're seeing and coming across in the conversations that you're privy to. And so final question, um, I started asking my guests this and you touched a little bit on, you know, kind of your hope for the future of cannabis, but what is the future of cannabis look like to you, to your businesses, to, um, usher in and what an opportunity could be and could become with your influence. Yeah. Here's the coolest thing. I I think there's probably a lot of, we'll call it, maybe they're not focused on it now, but maybe they'll use it as like a case study. Economists will be looking at the cannabis industry and they're going to say, man, what a peculiar industry. There's so many like smaller operators. It's a product that's 21 plus in most States. You can't move across state borders it's not following the path like everyone said of alcohol and tobacco. It's like there's a few things that are reminiscent, but it's very different. It's like in a category of its own almost. And I like that. Like I like that there's a lot of small operators and it's, this thing just isn't being like basically, you know, zipped up in a giant duffel bag from the pharma industry and handed over to a whole bunch of politicians or something. And that's the thing I'd be most scared of. So I would say the cannabis industry as it is today is pretty cool. And I wouldn't want to see it change over to the other side. Like even if you look at Canada, they have some really big operations, kind of like we were talking about, like why the states wouldn't want to have really big ones, but they also have some small operators. And I would just love to see diversity in the cannabis industry of business types, business sizes, and for the laws around cannabis to help support that so that we see a lot of boutique growers that are relevant and we see medium-sized growers that are relevant and large you know size growers that are relevant and they can help maybe bring in some inexpensive cannabis so people aren't breaking the bank to use it so like i would love to see a place for everyone in it and it not just turn into some 
corporate overlord pharma thing. Like, as long as that doesn't happen, I'm pretty good. You know, are we going to be perfect? No. A lot of people are going to like lose businesses. Yes. But I think a lot more people will be employed by the cannabis industry than people thought 10 years ago. People are like, holy crap, this is like, it's going to like have more tax revenue than alcohol. It's going to have more people working in it than alcohol. And like, that's awesome. So I would say, I hope that the cannabis industry just tries to stay true to its roots while at the same time becoming a little more professional. I'm super curious. Do you agree or disagree with how Nate views federal legalization? He makes a great case. These states are building infrastructure to help their local economy. And they're not going to be too thrilled with that leaving if we can all of a sudden ship cannabis freely across state lines. So what do you think? Reach out on Instagram at tobebluntpod. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Shada Trabi, and let's discuss this why or why not. As always, thanks for keeping it blunt with me. I will be back next week with another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast every Monday and encourage you to keep championing cannabis in your community. Bye, y'all. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 